Hello, I'm watching a video. It was taken 10 years ago, and I can see myself there with the then Chief Minister, Tony Brown, and there's Robert Quayle, the former chairman of the Isle of Man Steam Packet Company. We're actually on a Mersey ferry with a whole pile of sea cadets, the Spinners Folk Group, and descendants of some of those who lost their lives in one of the island's worst maritime disasters the loss of the SS Ellen Vannon 110 years ago today, the 3rd of December, 1909. We chartered the ferry in order to lay wreaths on the river to mark the tragedy that shook the island and devastated so many families. On this 110th anniversary, I'm going to look again at the events surrounding that fateful night. SS Allen Vannon was the oldest and smallest of the Steam Packet's fleet in 1909. Despite her size, she was probably the most loved of the vessels. She'd been in service for nearly 50 years. She carried the Royal Mail and was, in fact, the oldest mail steamer in the world. She'd started life in 1860 as a paddle steamer named Mona's Isle II but had been converted to a twin-screw steamer in 1882 and renamed the Ellen Vannon. She sailed regularly between Douglas, Ramsey, Liverpool and Whitehaven, with occasional visits to Glasgow and Belfast. On the night of her final voyage, she was making the routine journey from Ramsey to Liverpool. The heavy traffic of the summer season was long gone, and although her Board of Trade certificate allowed her to carry up to 299 passengers, on this cold winter's night, she had just 14 and 21 crew. And she had a cargo of live animals. There was one pig and 88 sheep divided equally between the pens on either side of the foredeck. Like many of her voyages, she also had other cargo, boxes of fish, turnips, potatoes, oats and so on. Furniture, including a piano, and of course, the mail from all around the island. she was due to leave at 1 a.m., two hours before high tide. And as the hour approached, the various passengers gathered to buy their tickets and make their way up the gangplank and down into the warmth of the saloon and steerage accommodation. After the event, after the sinking, stories began to emerge, as they do from any such tragedy, of coincidences, of strange twists of destiny that brought some people to their final journey and saved others from a certain death. I'm standing on the quayside here in Ramsey, just by Market Square. In front of me is the East Quay, now used by Meseron, but in fact the exact spot from where the Ellen Vannon sailed on her final journey. Across there are the old steam packet buildings with their elegant Victorian facade. Right beside me here is a small column with plaques on, commemorating the names of the passengers and crew who sailed from here that winter's night. Her captain on the 3rd of December was James Tear, one of the company's most experienced and respected captains. He was known for his caution, and crew members had said that they had never been with a safer captain. It was a large crew that night, and you can see all their names on the plaque here. 
John Crane, the first mate, John Kinley, the second mate, Edward Bellis, the chief engineer, along with a carpenter, several donkeymen who greased and oiled the engine parts, firemen, stewards and a cook, as well as seamen. Many of them were Manx and had been working for the steam packet for most of their careers. The 14 passengers were, as you might expect, all travelling for different reasons. There were two stonemasons from the south of England returning home for Christmas. They were employed in the construction of Ramsey's new Catholic church being built just around the corner. There was William Higginbottom, the tenant of the nearby Trafalgar Hotel. He was bound for Manchester for a medical appointment. There was a Mr and Mrs Heaton Johnson. He was a civil servant working in India and going back there after extended leave. He was to sail from Liverpool the next day and had tried to persuade his wife not to travel with him to see him off. Later newspaper reports claimed she had said, No, I'd better see the last of you. You might get drowned, you know. Whether that report was true or not, there was one decision that was definitely a fateful one. I'm standing now on the main road into Andreas, opposite a little cottage, which in 1909 was called Pear Tree Cottage, and in it lived Thomas Henry Quayle. He was 46 and was suffering from some sort of cancerous tumour in one of his ears. In those days, much like today, to get specialist cancer treatment, one travelled to Liverpool, and that's what Thomas Quayle was intending to do. However, at about ten o'clock he decided that the wind was too strong and that he wouldn't go after all. He retired to bed. But at midnight he woke up and, hearing that the wind had dropped, decided to travel after all. Never can a change of mind have been so costly. He got dressed and cycled the five dark miles into Ramsey along the quay and boarded the Ellen Vannon. That's the sound of a steam roller, like the one being used on the night of the Ellen Vannon's last sailing. It's relevant because of a Mr Black, we don't know his first name, who had got a job working in Ellen Vannon's engine room and was walking to Ramsey from Selby. On his way, he met a friend who was driving a steamroller and he accepted a lift. They stopped for a drink at the Ginger Hall and as the roller needed to take on water frequently, they also stopped for a drink at every opportunity between there and Ramsey. And as they approached the Central Hotel, close by the harbour, they heard the final blast from the Ellen Vannon's whistle before she sailed. Mr Black was too late to start his work on the ship and his life was saved. There are numerous accounts of people who decided against travelling that night because of the weather. And of course, the state of the weather was a key issue when the inquiries into the tragedy were undertaken. From all accounts, it was not remarkable that night, at least at the start. Windy, a choppy sea, but nothing that a seasoned steam packet boat couldn't handle and had indeed handled many times before. 
There was an account of a day some years before when several larger ships had taken shelter in Ramsey Bay from stormy weather and the little Ellen Vannon came out of the harbour and sailed off to Whitehaven. Hours later, when she returned and the vessels were still there, they all blew their whistles in acknowledgement of her indomitable spirit. She cast off for her last journey just before 1.15 in the morning. Her cargo stowed, her passengers below decks in the warmth of the saloon, and the weather forecast indicating a moderate northwesterly breeze with heavy showers of sleet, Captain Tear took the vessel out between the twin piers of Ramsey Harbour and into the open sea. Below decks, the passengers could avail themselves of a menu featuring a five-course dinner or lighter snacks of sandwiches and cheese and biscuits and a variety of alcoholic drinks. There was no electricity on the Ellen Vannon, so the saloon was lit with oil lamps fixed into gimbals, which kept the lights vertical whatever the angle of the ship. Above decks, things weren't so comfortable. In those days, the helmsman stood at the wheel on a small open deck in front of the room that housed the charts. The captain stood on the flying deck which was above and behind the wheel. It too was open to the elements and featured the binnacle which housed the all-important compass lit by two small oil lamps. Here there was no escape from the bitter wind, the driving rain and sleet and the impenetrable darkness that would have faced Captain Tear as he started to cross the Irish Sea. There is, of course, no record of what that journey was like, but it's not hard to imagine. From the weather records that were gathered that night, the moderate breeze eventually turned into a storm of such violence that few people had seen the like before. The weather station on the Wirral recorded winds of 81 miles an hour, hurricane force, and a deluge of rain. These conditions would have reached the Allen Vannon just over halfway through her journey, and the winds were blowing in behind her, pushing her onward through the sea. There was no possibility of Captain Tear turning the vessel and making back towards Ramsey. One can hardly imagine how the passengers must have felt as the sea became more and more violent and the little ship was repeatedly shaken and shuddered by the huge waves. In fact, damage was reported right across northern England that night and on the Isle of Man, and numerous ships were beached or damaged, and there was other loss of life, although nothing quite on the scale of the Ellen Vannon. By 9 a.m. the storm had lessened and as the grey light was dawning there was nothing to indicate that there was anything wrong. News was coming from all over the country concerning the damage as the hurricane had ripped through and in Liverpool as time passed it was assumed that the Ellen Vannon had sought shelter or even turned back to the island. A telegram was sent from the steam packets agents in Liverpool to Ramsey asking had she sailed. When it was confirmed that she had, inquiries were made in nearby ports, 
but there was no sign of the ship. The sea was still grey and choppy, and it was just after noon on the 3rd of December that troubling reports started to come in. The crew of the lightship, which was anchored at the entrance to the Mersey Channel and marked the start of the approach to Liverpool, had picked up a male hamper and two lifebuoys from the water. The lifebuoys had on them the name Ellen Vannon. The steam packets agents were asked to attend the marine surveyor's offices and there they were told further news of bags of turnips, a piano and a sofa found floating in the sea around the lightship. At five o'clock they telegraphed the head office in Douglas to say that they feared a serious calamity. Down at the harbour in Ramsey, People had been calling into the company's agent's office throughout the afternoon to make inquiries about the Ellen Vannon. Mr. Bell had given hopeful answers, but at around six o'clock, when he had to tell them the news from Douglas about the telegram, his office was besieged. There were wild rumors and hopeful theories. Maybe the ship had beached on the nearby Formby Sands Maybe the floating cargo merely meant that it had been swept off the deck and the passengers were safe. As darkness fell, there was still no definitive news and the emergency meeting of the steam packets board broke up at 10 o'clock. They reconvened next morning as more bad news came in. One of the Ellen Vannon's two lifeboats had been found stranded on the beach at New Brighton at the entrance to the Mersey. Her canvas cover was still on. There was evidence that she had been torn from her holding place. Parts of the Ellen Vannon's bridge had been found, washed up on the banks of the Mersey, and there was more floating wreckage, including dead sheep. Finally, at 4pm, the fears became reality. The wreck of the Ellen Vannon had been found lying in 30 feet of water at low tide, near to the bar lightship. When divers went down to examine her, they discovered that she'd been split in two amidships and that the two sections were about 25 feet apart. There was also a 14-foot gash where her plates had been staved in. Just three bodies were recovered from the wreck and as tragic as this was, it gave hope that the others had survived. A strong theory took hold that the little ship had been struck by a much larger ship which had then picked up all the passengers and crew and taken them to safety. No such collision was ever reported and the theory was eventually discounted. Unparalleled scenes were witnessed in Ramsey as the worst fears were realised. The offices of the northern newspaper, The Courier, were surrounded by anxious people and a special edition was eagerly snapped up with copies being snatched from the printing presses. It soon became clear that as the top of the ship's saloon had been wrenched off, opening the ship to the sea, that everyone, except the three trapped below, had been washed away in the raging storm. Of the 35 people lost that night, only 17 bodies were ever recovered. The furthest was found on the beach at Blackpool, some 25 miles north of the wreck, 10 weeks after the sinking. 
Messages of sympathy poured in as soon as the sinking was confirmed. A relief fund was set up to give immediate help to the dependents of those lost. They numbered some 23 widows and widowers and 58 children, all of whom benefited from the fund over time. The steam packet was less generous. They declared the incident an act of God and refused to give any compensation to the farmer's combine in relation to the lost cargo of crops. The combine sought a meeting with the packet's board of directors, but they said that as they weren't going to give compensation, the meeting would be pointless. The combine then passed a resolution that whenever possible in the future, their members would avoid using steam packet companies' ships. Whilst all of this was being dealt with, there was the issue of the wreck itself. The Ellen Vannon had sunk right in the shipping channel, a testament in a way to the extraordinary seamanship of Captain Tear, who had her right on course on that dreadful night. But now she was a hazard to shipping coming in and out of the Mersey. Eventually, to much objection, she was blown up. Three months after the sinking, a Board of Trade inquiry was opened in Liverpool to try and determine the cause of the disaster. Its proceedings were eagerly covered by newspapers both on and off the island. Witnesses included steam packet officials, nautical engineers, the divers who found the ship and other experts. One of the witnesses was a young lad, Edgar Burke, son of the ship's cook. He had been called in to identify a bizarre object. It was a message in a bottle. It had been found washed up on the sands near Southport, up the coast from the wreck. In it was a message which said, Ellen Vannon been in collision with unknown steamer. Just going down. Goodbye to all, E. Burke. Young Edgar said that the handwriting could be that of his father and the paper was similar to one of his notebooks. Furthermore, Edgar claimed that his father had often said that in a storm he would leave his last message in a bottle and throw it overboard. However, the chairman of the inquiry was not convinced and he declared the message, folded into an HP sauce bottle, to be a fake and wouldn't admit it as evidence. It was, of course, in the interests of the steam packet company to hold to the line that the Ellen Vannon had been sunk as a result of a collision with a much larger ship leaving Liverpool that night, a ship that might not even have realised that there had been a collision. But the evidence of the duty watchman on the bar lightship suggested otherwise. At around 6.30 that morning, he had seen the mast light of an inward-bound vessel entering the channel. It was in view for about five minutes. There was then a heavy shower of sleet which obscured it. He next saw a green flash at about 6.45. He called his skipper and they peered into the storm looking for a second flash, but they saw none, nor did they see the lights of any ship leaving the Mersey. It was then revealed that a clock recovered from the Ellen Vannon had stopped at 6.50, shortly after 6.30. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
shortly after the flash had been seen. A possible cause of the flash, it was suggested, was water rushing down the stoke hole and expelling hot cinders and flames from the funnel as she sank. The lightship marked that point in the river called the Bar, a place where the mud and silt carried by a river finally falls to the seabed. In the case of the Mersey, this creates a considerable hazard. Constant dredging is needed to keep the passage open. But the Bar has another effect. Because the seabed is higher at this point, it increases the size of any waves on the surface. At 6.30 on the morning of the 3rd of December 1909, there was a fatal combination of circumstances at this point. An ebbing tide with floodwaters running out from the Mersey at the same time as violent winds in the opposite direction. The channels and banks were swept by a terrific sea, the waves of which were up to 24 feet. The port side lifeboat of the Allen Vannon was never found, presumably smashed to pieces but the starboard lifeboat was found, as we've heard, albeit with its canvas cover still on. Examination of the wreck had shown that the davits that held it had been swung out, meaning that there had been some sort of an attempt to launch it. Had the captain called people up on deck during those last moments? Were they then swept away? Or had the sea, ripping off the top of the saloon, pulled everyone out? In the end, the inquiry concluded that the Ellen Vannon hadn't been in a collision. She was in a good and seaworthy condition and her cargo was properly stowed. However, she had encountered extraordinarily bad weather which had caused her, at the bar, to broach to, in other words, to keel right over. The sea washed away the aft companion, filling the aft part of the vessel which caused her to sink by the stern, leaving the bows out of the water. Whilst in this position, the heavy seas striking the forepart of the ship broke the bows away, splitting her in two, which was how she was found the next day. One can barely imagine the terror of those on board. Did some of them try and launch the lifeboat? Was the roof of the saloon ripped off and the passengers swept out into the freezing water in total darkness? Those questions no inquiry could answer. Many years earlier, Alfred Lord Tennyson had written a poem using the actual crossing of the bar of a river as a metaphor for death and the life beyond. Never were words more fitting for this tragedy and for any of the memorial services that were held in the days that followed. Twilight and evening bell, and after that, the dark. And may there be no sadness of farewell when I embark. For though from out are born of time and place, the flood may bear me far, I hope to see my pilot face to face when I have crossed the bar.